Welcome back to The Author Biz. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is the show where we deliver the information you need to build a thriving and sustainable business as an author. When speaking with authors about the GDPR, I get a variety of responses that range from a thoughtful, hmm, what are you talking about, to a sense of panic. If you're in the, hmm, what are you talking about category, the GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation Rule in the EU that will govern data protection and privacy for individuals within the EU or the European Union. All right, that sounds boring. If you're ready to turn this off already because you don't want to listen to boring stuff or you don't do business in the EU, hang in there with us for a little while. These new rules, which take effect beginning May 25th, 2018, will impact nearly all authors with websites or email lists. Today's guest is author B.L. Berry. And as you'll hear during the interview, her job forced her to take a hard look at GDPR and then to take an even deeper look into how it might impact her career as a romance author. In today's episode, we'll take a look at the GDPR and what we're doing to prepare for May 25th. Now for the disclaimer. Neither Barb or I are attorneys. None of what we're discussing during this show is advice aimed at you. It is instead a discussion of the steps we're taking to be sure we don't run afoul of these new laws ourselves. Every situation is different, but we hope this show gives you the insight you need to move forward confidently with your own plans for GDPR. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get this one started. My first question to Barb is, what the heck is the GDPR and why should authors care? GDPR is the Global Data Protection Regulation, and it goes into effect on May 25th this year. And essentially what the GDPR is doing, it's protecting its European constituents. So with this, think about, you know, the advent of the internet back in the 90s. It was kind of a hot mess free for all. And some loose regulations went into effect back in the 90s. So you had things like the do not call registry. There was rulings on consumer credit, um, what they could and could not do with unsolicited direct marketing, both physical and email. And so there was some loose terms done in place of the internet. And really, that's been the biggest thing since this ruling for, for the globe. Yes, Canada has some the can't spam and the castle laws, but the GDPR is really going to become the standard for the world, I think. And so if you think back to the 90s, you had, you know, the obnoxious dial-up sounds, you had those pop-up things that you couldn't close fast enough. And so the internet's really changed. And the fact that there hasn't been a major ruling to change along with it was problematic. So what the GDPR is doing, it basically is putting the control back into the constituents' hands. Okay, and why why did you become interested in this? So it's kind of funny. So I work for a tech company as my nine to five. I'm okay. in the marketing department, and so within my company, you know, we offer this great software program. And as the ruling was coming out, it was it, we knew that this was going to be a problem for our company, and so we knew we needed to make um, adaptations and changes to the software itself. And since I'm on the marketing team there, they brought me into the mix to kind of, you know, put it all in a pedestrian way for all of our clients. So as I'm going through this stuff, I'm like, oh, God, like, 
this, this is really going to impact mm-hmm. me as an author. And I need to start taking a look at what I'm doing. And I was like, if it's impacting me, it's impacting everybody else. It's going to anybody with a mailing list, anybody that collects any information on their readers or their fans, like this has long-term implications for all of us. And so I was talking with some of my, you know, my writer tribe and I was explaining this to them and they're like, you know, Barb, you, you really need to put some information out on this because nobody's talking about it. And so I was like, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. And I think that was maybe in December or January. And then I posted a blog post about it in March that basically said, you know, if you're an author, if you're a blogger, listen up because something's coming through the pipelines. And if you don't start taking precaution and action now, you could be up the creek without a paddle very soon. And so that's how my original blog post was born. And it just, it's kind of taken off. If I look at the hits and the views, I mean, it's thousands of views every week and it's still gaining momentum as the closer we get to that May 25th deadline. Yeah. And that's, that's how I found you the other day when I thought, oh, we should do a show on this. And I started looking for people that were talking about it from an author perspective. And there was a lot of like really high level authory stuff that was out there, but not a lot that that sort of got into the weeds and said this is what we need to do and this is why we need to do it and yours yours was one of the best posts out there so i i uh, i emailed you and was shocked to find out that you had just listened to an episode of the show and uh, so it's like okay so i don't have to explain who i am anyway so that's nice yes absolutely <laughs> so all right so let's let's dig into this a little bit so from a technology uh, technology companies the larger ones have been dealing with this for the last couple of years i've been in the technology business forever and they've been they've been getting ready for this for the last couple of years since it first came down the pike uh, in theory, they will be ready on the 25th for people, uh, one-man shops like most authors are. It's it's a little bit different thing, but the good thing is it doesn't really take all that much time to to get it all sorted out and, and to get everything that you need to do in place um, before the 25th. And before we go any further, I will say this in the intro, and I'm going to say it again now. Are you a lawyer? No, I am not. I'm not a lawyer either. And so what we are giving you is not legal advice. What Barb is giving you is her thoughts on what she's going to do as an author. And what I'm giving you, if I share any thoughts, are going to be my thoughts on what I'm going to do as an author. So that's it. Not legal advice. You're making the decision on all of these things, on on what you should do. Absolutely. And there is a lot of gray area, and we'll probably get into some of that too. So really just – Best judgment, best practices. Um, try not to be shady is what it comes down to. Yes. Yeah. Don't be shady and don't panic because it's really not that bad. It really isn't. Okay. Um, who uh, you, you, you sort of got into this a little bit, but let's let's get into detail. Who specifically will is, is being impacted by this As from, from the author community? Yes. So in theory, anybody that collects any data on readers, fans, etc., be it mailing addresses, be it phone numbers for text message marketing, um, any kind of information you're collecting, names, what have you. If any of those individuals are in Europe, if you have the future, or if in the future any of those people will possibly be in Europe, this will affect you in some small capacity. Okay, so essentially every author, and then there's also, I don't, I, I understand how cookies work. I don't know whether or not I'm using cookies in, in my various websites. I don't know whether WordPress uses cookies as a matter of course, um, but I'll, I'll, some of what I've seen is if you're just – like you don't even have to have a mailing list. If, you're, if you have a website 
and you're applying cookies, you, you could also be impacted by that. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So pretty much everyone that's out there listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I found fascinating uh, about all this in, in listening to some chatter in the author community is, well, you know, I've got MailChimp or I've got ConvertKit or whomever doing my email. They're going, they worry about this. I don't have to worry about it. What, what would you say to that? Um, yes and no. So in the essence of GDPR, we as the authors, the bloggers, whoever's collecting this information, we're considered the data controllers. A company like a third-party vendor, be it Facebook with the Facebook Pixel or InstaFreebie or MailChimp, MailerLite, any of those companies, they're considered the data processors. So ultimately, if anything goes awry, it's the data controller who's going to be held responsible. So even though we're using all these third-party vendors and they're getting their software and their updates up to par to be compliant with the GDPR, if something happens, we still fall on the sword. And if, if you fall, it's, it is a costly fine. Like we're talking either 4% of your gross annual revenue or 20 million euros. Like it's, it's expensive if you get caught. Um, but along those lines, I just totally lost my train of thought. I am so sorry. <laughs> well, um, al along those, along those lines, um, and I don't know if this is where you were going with this or not, but it, it's sort of intuitive that this is a this is a government thing yes. and they will be dealing with complaints and the first people that they look at are not going to be authors with five or ten thousand people on their email list Correct. they're going to be looking at facebook and google and the big technology companies yep. uh they will be responding to complaints but you know we're we're pretty far down the list yes. but it's still this is the time to get things sorted out precisely so that you know we, we're comfortable with what we're doing and you mentioned earlier it's just sort of like don't be creepy with with what you're doing in the old days of internet marketing there were lots of really creepy ways of people getting email addresses and using them for marketing right and that sort of went away with some of the can spam laws but there are still some th there are still some ways of of that we authors do things that sort of run afoul of some of those laws and definitely run afoul of um, the GDPR uh, when we possibly when we're doing things like newsletter swaps or using InstaFreebie and things like that to gather names. Can we talk specifically about those two things and some other some other ways that we gather names that don't collect an actual consent? Yes. Uh, that you're collecting for the uh, recipient to receive things from you and, and why that's important. Yeah. So for me personally, <clears throat> the only way moving forward that I will allow somebody on my mailing list is if they're going through a third party channel where their information is collected and digitally added to my database. So that means whatever I'm at assigning, I'm not going to be collecting email addresses on a sheet of paper. I will have my iPad there and it will be linked to my MailChimp landing page where they can go ahead and sign up for my communications on the spot. Because then I have that physical digital trail if anybody comes back and chooses to exercise their rights and wants to know how I receive their information. So I know there is a lot of giveaways out there where it may be done through a raffle copter or something. And one of the things will be, yes, sign me up for this individual's email address. And they just have to click a button. 
The problem here is you're going to get a lot of folks that are just looking for the freebies and are just clicking the buttons to click the buttons for the extra entry. And when you do that, basically it logs their email address in a CSV file that you then receive at the end of that promotional period. I would not trust that data because that's not linked directly back to my database and I will not have that physical trail. When I would import it, yes, it would say this data was imported on this day, but that's really to the extent of what I would have as my digital trail. Whereas I personally, for me, really want to see from point A to point B, that explicit express of opt-in, them clearly saying, yes, I'm here, I want your newsletter, I want your information, and my information's not compromised getting from point A to point B. Because, you know, when you when you sign up for some of these um, promotional programs, you do it in good faith. Could somebody in theory have purchased a mailing list or what have you, or created fake emails to turn around and say, look at how successful this promotion was. I have 5,000 email addresses for you. Mm-hmm. And I would be really leery of the integrity of that data. So that's, that's my personal line in the sand. And it's kind of a gray area because some folks will come back and argue, you know, well, it clearly stated on the button that, you know, by clicking this button, you would be signing up to receive XYZ email addresses or, or excuse me, XYZ newsletters. Um, but again, what is that individual? What is their true intent? Do, do they really want my information? Or are they just looking to get an entry into a, into a contest? Yes, and the GDPR rules are fairly specific about that, and it just depends then on how you choose to interpret those. Like you said, it, it's a gray area, and you don't want to put yourself in the position of letting someone else decide uh, whether you've done the right thing or not if you can just decide up front that this is – I'm going to draw the line in the sand here – and I know I'm safe on this side of the line. Yes. Have you done any research into what MailChimp is doing and has done to get ready for this? Um, yeah, I've done a handful between all of the different programs that I actually will link to them in the blog post anytime I'm given new alerts on what's happening with GDPR. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they have gone through and, and part of my issue with, with mailing lists, but let me back up for a second, is this idea that, you know, they sit there and say, you know, email your European constituents, make sure they want to have, um, that they still want to continue to receive your information. The problem that we're running into as authors is I don't know of anybody that is selecting country as, right. as data to collect so you can further segment. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, you want to be able to segment to get higher interaction and engagement rates, but normally the things that I'm seeing authors collecting are first names, email addresses, sometimes their birthdays if they do an automated birthday campaign. Um, I've seen it down to <clears throat> which reading device they prefer, because then you can go in and tailor your messaging specific or iBooks users versus Kindle Unlimited. Um, some are collecting physical email addresses, Kindle email addresses, preferred tropes. But beyond that set of information, you know, we're not asking for, for are, are you in Canada or are you in Spain or the U.S. or Mexico? Like we don't have that information unless we're doubling back matching profiles up to social media and then making assumptions, okay, this, this reader actually is in New York City versus this one that's in Paris. So when they sit here and tell you to, to, to email you know, your European constituents, that's, that's a big assumption that we have that info because most of us don't. So what I'm seeing them recommending is, uh, this is kind of another, another gray area. I've seen folks be consulted that they should email everybody in their database and ask them to re-opt in. And my personal opinion, and again, I am not a lawyer, I think that approach is is not the most strategic one. A, because 
you figure the likelihood of, or excuse me, the percentage of European constituents on your database versus non-European, I think you're going to see a big gap there. And then you're giving everybody under the sun, you're asking them like, hey, do you want to opt out? Clearly, between all of our mailing lists, there is there is the explicit opt-out section at the bottom. All of our emailing newsletters mm -hmm. should have those built into it already. If they haven't been built in, you need to take a look because you need to make sure you're adding something where somebody can express consent to say, no, I no longer want to receive your communications. Um, but on the back end, MailChimp and MailerLite and Constant Contact, they've been busy making sure that um, they're going to become compliant with all eight of these core regulations and tenets. So if a user comes to them and says, hey, I would like to exercise my right of erasure, or I want to exercise um, you know, the right of data portability, or the right to object, they can in turn have the tools ready for the authors and bloggers to go back to them and say, okay, I've got a user that wants to be forgotten. What do we need to do? And they've already got the systems in place that in the theory, with the click of a button, you'll be able to become compliant specifically with them on that platform. Now it gets a little, a little hairier when you start to think about mm -hmm. um, the individuals who will export your mailing list and then re-import it into Facebook for targeted marketing campaigns. Because MailChimp's got you covered off there. So if, you, if somebody says, I want to be forgotten, Barb, I'll say, okay, we'll go ahead and get that entire record deleted out of my MailChimp uh, instance. But then I then in turn have to go back into Facebook and anywhere else where I've uploaded this data for targeted marketing. And I need to single-handedly find that individual and erase that record completely. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's something I think a lot of people don't think of. And that's <clears throat> one of the, I, there was a, a comment string in, in the blog post that you'd written about this specific thing. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't think of. It's we just think, okay, we've got this list and it's MailChimp or MailerLite or ConvertKit or whatever. And that's all we have to deal with. But if we're using that to build targeting campaigns with Google or with Facebook, then it's we have shared it with them. And if a user, if, if someone on the list asks for it yes. to be removed, we have to, we have to comply. That's the law. Okay. Uh, let, you mentioned the constituent rights. Let's, let's sort of walk through all eight of them and then maybe the four that, that most apply to authors. Yep. So I'll just kind of go through the list. So the first one is the right of access. And basically it means anybody can raise their hand and say, I want to know what information you've got on me and how it's being used. For most of us, it'll be, I know your name. I know your email address, and it's being used in the form of uh, newsletter marketing, and I've got targeting campaigns on Facebook or what have you. Uh, the second is the right to rectification. So again, if somebody says, hey, I know you've got my mailing address um, because you market direct mailing to me, and I've just moved, I would like to update or change that information. That is basically all that says is... I want to make sure you've got the correct info on me. So anything from legal name changes, documenting home addresses, if they get a new Kindle device and they've got a new Kindle email address, that's their opportunity to raise their hand and say, let's make a change. Mm -hmm. The right to be forgotten, also known as the right to erasure. Basically, they can request to have their personal data removed from a controller and a processor system at the drop of a hat. The only um, fields that this is really not applicable in is going to be the financial fields because most of them, for legal compliance, they have to keep data for seven years. So things like credit unions, banks, things like that. But again, we're not those bigger corporations. So if somebody comes to us and say, hey, remove me, we have to comply. 
Uh, the fourth is the right to restriction of processing. And basically, those are for the bank. So if they cannot physically erase somebody's information, the constituent has the ability to say, restrict what you're processing of my data. The right to be informed is number five. And this is really all about the collection and use of a constituent's personal data. So you would need to provide them with the details from the moment they opt into your communications to when they want to be opting out. So again, that goes back to needing that digital trail. I can say, oh, well, I imported you on this day and they can turn around and be like, well, I never gave you my email address to import. And so it goes back to making sure you've got quality and integral data on your constituents. Um, the right to data portability is basically somebody saying, hey, I want a copy of everything you've got on me. And for us, this would be as simple as um, exporting as a CSV file and passing it along. So any kind of information that you've collected, if you're one of those folks that gets into the birthdays and the Kindle addresses and the mailing addresses and reading devices, basically you're showing them all of the information how it's stored. The right to object is essentially, I'm going to allow you to keep my data, but I'm going to object for marketing or research purposes. So you can hold on to it, but you can't talk to me. And then the last one <laughs> is the right to not be subjected to a decision based on automated processing. So again, thinking about those automated profiling systems, which this one really does not impact authors or bloggers. Um, but basically it says, you can hold on to my data, but you can't profile my based on what you see. And then thinking about the ones that are gonna be most important to us, um, it's really gonna be the right of access. So I wouldn't be surprised if a few folks were like, hey, you know, what do you have on me? How are you using it? And being able to talk to that, the right of rectification. Although I feel like uh, most folks will just kind of fall off and you get those bounce backs or, you know, the direct mail pieces that float back to you. So that would be another one that could impact us. The right to be forgotten and the right of erasure. I think that's really going to be the biggest one that we're going to face is anybody trying to opt out and become obsolete within our within our contact systems. And then I, yep, yeah, I was gonna say, and the, really the last one is going to be that data portability. If somebody mm -hmm. says, "Hey, show me what you got," I mean, being able to pull that seamlessly from their system for them. Okay, and so you, you've mentioned um, the the idea that people can reach out to someone. Um, to do this, who are they reaching out to? There's, I, I, I think I've seen the term data compliance officer or something like that. Yeah. So data protection officer is what you're going to find at a lot of larger corporations. And this was a mandated um, position for, for anybody over a size of, I don't remember what the financial threshold is, but essentially the DPO's information needs to be made public. So if there's an issue, that's the person that's going to be responsible for handling these requests. Obviously, when you're the president, CEO, creative director, marketing director, social media director for your entire, you know, one man author show, DPO now becomes your title as well. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I feel like most individuals in the reader community, they're, they're just, they just they know to email the author or they know to use that opt out information at the bottom of those emails. So I think it'll probably be fairly low key for those of us in the industry. Um, but again, you might, you might get somebody that needs somebody a little bit more higher profile. And in that case, if you're traditionally published, you may be able to rely on um, some guidance and counsel from, you know, what the publisher's DPO, if they've got one set in place. Okay. Um, I had a couple questions in the AuthorBiz Facebook group, specific questions. I think we've answered one of these, but I'll, I'll just I'll give it to you so that we can give an explicit answer. This is from yep. author Liv Campbell. She asks, or she says, I think the biggest question is whether we are allowed to give away a freebie 
and tie it into signing up for a newsletter with appropriate disclosures? Yes. So I actually went back and forth um, with InstaFreebies. Uh, customer service team just trying to get a little bit of clarity on this because when I re- received their um, GDPR compliance, I was like, uh, this this doesn't really make sense to me because the one thing with like Insta Freebie and BookFunnel and all these, you know, giving away opportunities is the idea of I'm getting your contact information, you're getting a free book, it's a mutually exclusive or a mutually beneficial exchange in theory. Um, and so previously Insta freebie had it where that would be a mandatory piece of the puzzle. Like you had to give your information in order to receive the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they've gone on the record saying that this opt-in is now going to be optional. And the way that it was phrased in, um, in their response for the GDPR legislation is like this, this, I'm not sure if I'm understanding it correctly. So I had basically said, you know, is removing the mandatory option going to be required for individuals? Um, yes or no. And she said, only if we're going to be promoting that giveaway through their social media, their blog, their newsletter. In those instances, they will not select Insta freebie opportunities where it's mandatory. Now, best practices is they're going to try to guide authors um, to have it be an optional opt-in. But it sounds like the mandatory opt-in will still be available. Now, again, this to me is a little bit of a gray area because in my mind, it's, it's which comes first, the cart or the horse. So if I'm having an Insta freebie landing page to grow my newsletter, I would say something along the lines of, you know, come sign up for my newsletter and I will reward you with a free book versus get a free book and I'm going to sign you up for my newsletter. So I think if you, if, if when you position yourself in the marketplace, depending how you present the opportunity is the, the language per se is really what it's going to come down to, at least in my non-lawyer opinion. <laughs> Again, it goes back. Okay. So uh, in your non-lawyer opinion, you, you, in your, in your personal case, then you would want to be as explicitly clear as possible that, Hey, you can get this free book, but by signing, signing up for this, you're signing up for the email list. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I signed up for my email list and as a thank you, I will send you this free book. Okay. All right. Uh, second question is from Dan Stout, and he says, I'm hearing a number of different things about stated privacy policy and whether it needs to be accessible from all the pages of your site or just from a sign-up form. Um, I think it's important to have it on both. So if you look at most corporations, you'll find their privacy policy isn't that. Privacy policy is in the footer of their navigation. Mm-hmm. So it's usually a small link, or sometimes it's about in the About Us drop-down section of the top navigation. It's not obnoxious, but I think it's important to have one in place um, come May 25th. And that's actually something that I have on my list that I've been going back and forth with my lawyer just to make sure that I'm covered off with everything that I'm going to be including in it. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, in bright lights. It's usually just a little link in the footer. And I think if you allude to the fact that, you know, you respect everybody's privacy, uh, disclose if you're using cookies, disclose if you're using affiliate links for Amazon, um, any data that's collected, you know, may be used for future marketing, especially thinking if you've got a Facebook pixel in place, all of that language should just be politely put in there 
and just not intrusive. Okay, and for people who might not be technical and deal with their own websites, uh, the footer is that thing on the bottom of a website that is at the bottom of every page. So if you just put the privacy notice on the footer, regardless of what page uh, a reader lands on on your website, they will see that privacy policy. Correct. Okay. And you do you have a privacy policy now on your website? Um, I do not, but I've actually been in the process of getting one um, firmed up mm -hmm. in advance of May 25th. My brother is my lawyer in full disclosure. Okay, I was going to say, so, I cannot yeah. believe you're going out and hiring a lawyer to do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So I've been kicking around with him because he's got some folks in his firm that, that this is their specialty. And I just want to make sure that I'm going to be covered off. So there's a lot of free resources online, too, mm -hmm. that you can basically template out a privacy policy. And it can be as as lengthy or as short as you want it to be. But it's always good to have yourself covered off there. Yes. So again, uh, in, in your case, you have decided to add a privacy policy to your website. I am going to make sure that all of my websites that, that do anything have privacy policies. Most of them do now, but not all of them. Um, that's what we're doing. Yes. Okay. And there are resources available. One of them is from Mark Dawson who also did a podcast on this topic. Uh, many of you may have heard it, but as a part of that, and this was kind of funny because at the end of the, at the, end of the podcast, it's like, hey, we're, we're developing this free resource that's going to include all the information that we're talking about. And to get it, you have to sign up for our email list. And I just want to be perfectly clear that you have to sign up for our email list if you <laughs> want to get it. But in, in the download uh, there is actually an example that they have run through their lawyers, and they are in the uh, in the UK um, as as acceptable for them, and and they say it's freely borrowable, so you can have access to it or to a template uh, from them if you want to go that direction. Barb, tell us about your writing. What do you do? What do you, what do you write about? And and first, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this information with everybody. And now let's do the. Uh, the the commercial for what you do and the books that you write. Oh man, um, I write romance. I have four titles out right now, and I'm not one of your rapid release kind of folks. Mm -hmm. I I'm a full time mom. I am a full time wife. I'm a full time marketing guru during the day, and so. <laughs> yes, you may be able to hear children scurrying yes. around in the background so, there. <laughs> There's a very small window of time and sanity every day, and sometimes it's 15 minutes, and sometimes it's an hour that I'm actually able to sit down and try to put thoughts down on paper. So I'm lucky to get one to two books out a year. <laughs> um, but I write in the romance genre, so I've got some new adult romance, a little bit of women's fiction slash romantic suspense, um, and I also have some romantic comedy out. And so what people really know me for is – is fabulously flawed characters and it's it's very real <laughs> the stuff that I write and I get comments from readers all the time they're like oh my god this is this like hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting because it's very blunt it's very um kind of sarcastic I talk or I write very similar to how I talk and I don't normally talk super legal ease like we've been doing today um uh, but it's it's I, I I'm totally blubbering right now I'm sorry uh I know. That's what happens it's when you like, ask someone to talk about their books. My books are awesome and you should totally buy them. Like <laughs> that's my elevator pitch at signings. <laughs> but really it's it's romance that you feel good about and that you can relate to and see yourself in. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I don't remember what it was, but they were interviewing a television personality who for a living is on TV talking to people all day long. 
and this person throughout the course of the interview was was incredibly glib and well-spoken. Everything was perfect. And at the end, it, uh, this person had written a children's book. And it's like, tell us about the children's book that you've just written. And it was like a completely different person exactly. stepped behind the microphone. <laughs> it was funny. So how how is how are things in your author business? How's it going? It's going really well right now. Um, I mean, I released. I guess it was Birthquake was my romantic comedy that I released back in September, and so I'm starting to see the downside of that in terms of sales because mm-hmm. I I'm not in that person that can, that can release a book a quarter. I wish I could be. Um, so right now, just kind of maintenance mm-hmm. and working on the next couple books. I've got a co-write coming out with Stephanie Rose later this year, mm-hmm. and I've got a really super angsty. Um, a little a little dirty book coming out called Let's Be Bad. I'm hoping to get that out later this year as well. And I notice you have audio as well? Yes, I do. I think the audiobook market is one of those untapped gems that most folks don't really consider. And the first um the first two audiobooks I did for Unforgivable Love Story and Love Nouveau, I actually self-published those through ACX. Uh-huh. I was fortunate enough to get hooked up with some amazing narrators in the process. Oh my gosh, like I couldn't believe that we were able to, to pull off what we did. And this was and just the standard, done. like you went out and you posted the um, the audition material and, and you got auditions and found them that way? Yes. Cool. And I did royalty share on those mm-hmm. because it was my first time out of the gate. I was like, I'm not sure what I'm doing. And God love Megan for the voiceover for um, An Unforgivable Love Story. Megan Kelly, she held my hand the whole time. She's like, this is what you need to do next. And this is what comes after this. And so after that process, I mean, it sold a handful, a good amount of audiobooks. I was really pleasantly surprised. I kind of had my footing underneath me. And then I put Love Nouveau, which is the first book of the duet. So that was actually my debut back in 2014. We put that one up. And the auditions that I was getting, I was like, oh, gosh, like these aren't these aren't super good. And so, no joke, I was getting ready to take the listing down and try again at a later date. And when I went to go do it, there was a message from this narrator named Andrea Ems. And she was like, I'm really intrigued by the script that you've got on here for the audition. She goes, I know it's a little older. Um, has it already been filled? I said, no. And she goes, well, I'd like to audition for you. And oh, my gosh, like first words out of her mouth. I was floored. I was like that. That is the voice of Ivy right there. Like it was so spot on. Mm-hmm. I think I listened to 30 seconds and I was like, yes, let's do this. You're amazing. Like she captured everything. So that was the second foray into audiobooks. And then after the release of Birthquake, I'd been talking with um, an agent out of the Connecticut, you know, New York City area. Mm-hmm. And she brought me on and she was able to sell the rights for Birthquake directly to Audible. Oh, cool. So that was really exciting for me to work through an agent and go through that process and see it all come to life when somebody else, you know, takes creative control. It's it's a scary thing, but it was it was well worth it in the end because the response has been nothing short of fantastic. So when you sell directly to Audible, I don't know whether there's a non-disclosure or anything here, so shoot me down if I shouldn't be asking these questions. But are do they pay you in advance and how how is how did that work? You know, I'm not sure if there was an NDA with that, but the general process was, yes, there, there was an advance. I, I'm sorry to my agent if I'm not supposed to be saying <laughs> any of this. So there, there was an advance and it's part of the romance limited package. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's out there in the wild and doing pretty well from what I understand. Interesting. Interesting. And you are in the romance community and yes. there has been 
a little bit of blowback on the uh, on the romance um, audiobook <laughs> package. How's it been for you? Um, I mean, you definitely once once the packages took place, um, you did see a dip in the sales for sure. And I had got I you know regrouped with my narrators that for the royalty share version. And when we talked about it, I was like, I'm going to ask to be pulled out because it wasn't fair to them. I mean, God, with with a number of listening reads, the way it all shook out, it was like less than $10 mm-hmm. per buck. I was like, this is unbelievable when you think about the sales that could have, you know, come out in the end. So I had written a letter to Audible just kind of explaining my stance on it. And that's not a sustainable way to run a business. Um, my author, or excuse me, my narrators had done similar things. And when I had asked to be pulled out of it, they came back and they said, you know, we're actually working through some of the kinks right now. And so they're doing listener bonuses mm-hmm. on, um, for the narrators and the authors. So I've received some of those bonuses. I mean, they're not, they're not super healthy or massively rich bonuses, but it's enough to help bridge that gap on the sales lost. Yeah. And I think we should say uh, that unless it's different because you are audible published your, your second audio book, there's only been one payment and then there was the bonuses that were applied, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. All right. So there's not there's not a great deal of data on this, but I know there was uh, the expectations were were not met with with the initial payments. I think it's it's fair to say that. Absolutely is. Yes. Okay. Um, do you have any sense of and maybe you don't because of uh, you're part of the the package, but if you do, do you have any sense of the number of audiobooks you sell compared to the number of ebooks? Oh man, I mean the percentage of total audiobooks sold for the so I can't see I don't receive the sales data for Birthquake, mm-hmm. which is the one I sold to Audible for but for the other two I do. I mean, I all in all I've sold, you know, several hundred of each mm-hmm. audiobook, but then when you look to the total number of ebooks, I mean tens of thousands of the other ebooks. So it's it's not apples to apples. Okay, so it's a it's a fairly low percentage. Okay. Yes, but I do think the audiobook is a growing market and as marketers we need to figure out how to more effectively tap into that market because it's it's a tough cookie to crack. It is. It really is. Marketing marketing audiobooks is yeah, if somebody figures it out that it'll it'll be Let it'll be know. really something. Yeah, there's there are a lot of people yeah. and I I I have <laughs> talked to people who are just absolutely killing it with audio and I'm not I, I don't really understand what's happening. I think it's just more of one of those things. Um, I, I spoke to someone about a year ago, I think, when we were doing a show on audiobook marketing, and she said in her mind the rule of thumb was if you could get one audiobook sold for every 10 ebooks, you were doing pretty well. And I work, work with a company where we've done a little over 100 audiobooks, and at the at the best end, the, the 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 books that sell the best and sell the most audiobooks are right around ten percent, um, and then it scales down to about five percent. So somewhere between five and ten percent is what we see. Um, I was just curious what you saw. Yeah, I'm probably closer to that five percent mark. Okay. Yeah. And do you, do you get the the WhisperSync pricing? I do. Okay. Yes. All right. And so for people who don't know, that's the thing where you buy the book and it says for I don't know seven dollars and forty nine cents or whatever it may be. Audible sets the price. Um, you can buy the audiobook as well. So they they make it sort of a no-brainer for people who like audio. All right, Barb, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, man, not that I can think of, no. All right, well, we will link to everything that we talked about in the show, in the show notes. 
And we will also link to Barb's wonderful um, blog post that was written back in March. Uh, we've been talking with B.L. Barry, Barb, the best-selling romance novelist. And Barb, what's the best place for listeners to connect with you? Um, on my website, www.authorblberry.com, or you can find me on Facebook as Author B.L. Barry. Stalkers are welcome, <laughs> just not the creepy kind. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for being here and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thank you. 